Greetings, and welcome to our service tonight. Amen. So good to see all of you. Praise God. We have an awesome service in store. You know why? Because God's here. Who cares who's up here? God is here. Amen. I look forward to every opportunity I can to get into the presence of God, to receive from Him whatever He has in store for me. Amen. Let's all stand, please. We have an opportunity in front of us tonight to receive from the Lord everything that He wants to give. All we have to do is receive. God has a purpose and a plan for the service tonight. This is His service. It's His church. We're His people. Amen. So we're going to do our very best to submit ourselves to the will and plan of God tonight. And we'll see what God will do. Amen. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless this service this evening. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. You're a mighty, wondrous, glorious Savior, and we heap glory and honor unto You tonight. Most High God, thank You, Jesus, for this opportunity You've afforded us tonight to enter into the presence of Almighty God. I don't take that opportunity for granted. I do not esteem it lightly. Hallelujah, Jesus. I am so thankful for the revelation of truth that You have given unto us, that You have truly made us repositories of the Word of God, repositories of the truths of Your Word. Hallelujah, Jesus. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name that Your perfect will would be accomplished tonight, that all of Your heart, all of Your mind would be manifest in this place. I pray, Lord, above all else, that Your great and mighty name would be glorified in our midst. Bless Your people. Bless those within the sound of my voice. Bless those joining us online. I pray, O God, that You would give them exactly what they need. Hallelujah, Jesus. Not what we desire, not what our ears are itching for, but what we need. Hallelujah, Jesus. These things we ask in Jesus' name. And we give you glory and we give you honor. We worship and we praise you. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. You're an awesome God. And we're expecting awesome things of you tonight. Praise God. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Amen, amen. Praise God. Thank you for entertaining the presence of God. You can be seated tonight. Amen. Before we start, I do want to welcome uh, Brother and Sister Parker's son, more handsome. Amen. <laughs> I asked him, uh, what, would, what was it like growing up with Brother Parker? He said, who? <laughs> I've never met that guy. <laughs> uh that's when I knew I'd like him. Amen. <laughs> I'm told he's a lieutenant colonel, though. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's good to have you here tonight, in all seriousness. God bless you. We're going to continue our study tonight on the, uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And again, the reason we're, we're looking at these first 11 chapters is primarily because these are the most contested uh, chapters in Scripture. There is very little, if any, historical or archaeological evidence that we can dig up and say, see, these Scriptures are true. These verses are true. Uh, not that that's what we're looking for. Not that that's what we need to prove to myself that, oh, okay, Scripture actually is true. I can trust it. No, that's not, that's not it at all. Uh, it is our presuppositional stance. It is our foundational truth upon which everything else is filtered. The Word of God is 
true altogether. And it doesn't matter if we find any external evidence for it being true or not. It is nice to see, and it can help some people who are kind of on the fence. Uh, and so, the reason these are contested, and the reason they're contested so effectively, is for that very reason. People approach the Word of God with the idea that maybe it's true, maybe it's not. And then from that point, they want to heap different proofs, different evidences, and they're going to weigh the pros and the cons, and if the Bible outweighs something else, I'll go with that. But that's not what Scripture teaches. That's not how we ought to approach Scripture. We ought to approach Scripture as it is presented, the very Word of God. True from cover to cover, infallible, inerrant. It's always true. If at any point I differ from it, I'm wrong. If at any point anything else differs from it, it's wrong. And the Word of God is true. Amen. So these scriptures, these uh, chapters from Genesis 1 to 11 are heavily contested by atheists, by agnostics, by those seeking to discredit the Bible, and those who are kind of on the fence, those who have not yet made that presuppositional commitment to the truth of God's Word, will be swayed by these things. They will be swayed by uh, science has proved the Bible false. Science has shown that, that, that the creation account can't possibly be true. Science has demonstrated this, that, or the other. And if I don't have a presuppositional commitment, if I don't approach the Word of God as truth, no matter what, then I can be swayed by those things. And so that's why people argue and debate a lot of Scripture, but this most heavily. And so that's why we're going through this in this study. I want to demonstrate to you that although there are a lot of people shouting arguments from the rooftops that these cannot be true, I'm declaring today, yes, they are absolutely true. Not only because it's the Word of God, not only because it's just common sense, logic, cogency, all of those things apply to the Word of God. But, we also have these external evidences. Alright, so, as we proceed, uh, tonight I'm going to, I'm hoping to get through uh, chapters 2 through 6. Alright, uh, geology, weather patterns, etc., etc. There was a different world before the flood. A very different world. Well, how different? What, what was it like? We don't know a whole lot. Uh, there's not a lot said in, in Scripture. But, uh, there are a few things that we can determine. One, there was a canopy of water in the upper atmosphere. It could have been the form of vapor, ice, etc., and that becomes important. Genesis chapter 1, 6 through 7 says, God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament, or the atmosphere, from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. All right. Uh, today we have kind of a uh, water suspension. 
within the atmosphere. There, there is uh, water vapor held in the, in the atmosphere, varying degrees, depending on where you go. It could be very humid. It could be very dry. But there is always a little bit of water being suspended in suspension within the atmosphere. And today we understand, in a general sense, there's, a, there's kind of a weather cycle for this. Uh, there's water on the, on the earth or in the oceans. The sun comes, heats it up. It turns into a, a, a gas or water vapor. It comes into the atmosphere, moves with the, the air currents, gets to a cooler spot, condenses, and falls back down as rain. And on and on it goes. That's a little simplistic, but that's pretty close. Before the flood, it wasn't like that at all. There was no rain coming down from heaven. I thought I had that in there. I don't. All right. <clears throat> there was a mist that came up from the ground, watered the earth, but there was no rain. Okay. So what would this canopy of water do, whatever form it took? Well, one effect it would have is it would filter out cosmic radiation. And this becomes important when we understand how long people lived back then. 900 some odd years is, is the lifespan of the average person back then, a little bit longer than it is today, by a couple weeks at least. <clears throat> so it would filter out the cosmic radiation, and that would have all kinds of effects. The cosmic radiation that comes down here is largely, from day to day, you, you don't really notice it a whole lot. But what that serves to do is they're like little bullets and they're punching holes through your, your cells. They're punching little holes through your, uh, your genes, your DNA molecules, all of these things. And eventually, those things add up over time. It's one of the things that causes genetic mutations, is these cosmic rays coming down. And they're very high-energy particles. Uh, there's not a lot that can stop them. Uh, a vast body of water can stop them. A uh, uh, decent amount of lead can stop them. A great big concrete bunker could stop them. Uh, so, um, as they say, if you don't want to get all old and wrinkly as we grow older, you have a couple options. Uh, one, you can die young, which isn't an option, right? Or two, you can hold yourself up in one of these bunkers. I'm just going to take option three. Live my life here. Another effect that this canopy of water would have is it would increase the atmospheric pressure. Has anybody ever heard of a hyperbaric chamber? Okay. Um, they're used a lot in, in, in medicine, healing. Um, and they have amazing effects on the human body. Uh, it creates an environment basically that super oxygenates the body and it results in very rapid healing. Uh, it also generates a very vigorous immune system within that person. It will, it will help someone heal through something that, that would otherwise not heal at all on its own. And so uh, this is how potentially planet Earth was, a great big hyperbaric chamber. Uh, there are creation or Christian geologists who study these things out, higher uh, pay grade than I'm in, but uh, 
some of these have found uh, chunks of amber, which they believe were generated during the flood. And in these chunks of amber are little air bubbles. And they've tested the air in these air bubbles. And it was like three to four times the amount of oxygen in here than there there is out here normally. So, if that's true, and please understand, there's no definite proof of this. There is only one eyewitness account that we have of that time period. And what we find in Scripture is all he's telling us. Okay? So a lot of this is inference. A lot of this is, well, downright speculation. But it does seem to line up with Scripture. Throwing that out there. So, if all of this comes, comes to, to fruition here, we got increased atmospheric pressure, we got increased oxygen content, and uh, another point to make is that there is strong evidence within the, the uh, Earth's crust to suggest that the Earth's magnetic field was at least ten times stronger pre-flood than it is today. Now, it is demonstrably true that the Earth's magnetic field is getting weaker. It's been getting weaker for as long as we've been measuring it. There are little spikes here and there, but it's generally weaker, which suggests, of course, that as we go farther into the past, it was stronger. That would also help. All of this together, very clearly, very powerfully, demonstrates long lifespans. Even after the fall, we see them tapering off fairly quickly after Uh, after Noah's flood. But even after the fall, lifespans remained very long. Uh, Dinosaurs. Who likes dinosaurs? I love dinosaurs. I've never met one. But I imagine that that they would be really cool from a distance. Dinosaurs are real, folks. They actually lived on planet Earth. Um, They're not a figment of the atheist's imagination. Uh, They actually existed. We have actual fossil evidence that they were around. Uh, This would also explain why these things, these lizards, grew so big. The hyperbaric effect, the increased lifespan, it's also a proven fact that lizards in nature continue to grow until they die. In captivity, they don't do that. I, I don't know what the reasoning is there. But out in the wild, they continue to grow until they die. Imagine if one of these lizards lived to be two, 300 years old. How big would they grow? Pretty big. Pretty big. So, dinosaurs did exist. They existed with human beings. How do I know that? Because of Genesis chapter 1. The creation week. This also explains why the Bible says there were giants in the land. I couldn't find the articles. I had articles in the past where people have dug up human remains, uh, femur bones that would place the person at anywhere from 11 to 12 feet tall. And not just once either. All over the place. And um, 
that doesn't fit in with the evolutionary story. So, of course, that doesn't really get reported because everything's getting bigger, better, faster, stronger, uh, which means that they were slower, smaller, dumber in the past. So, that contradicts the story. Okay, um, these giants in the land. Genesis 6 speaks of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Giants in the land, Nephilim. Who's heard of Nephilim? Okay, we're not going to be able to get a whole lot into that tonight. Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll hit that hard and fast. This would explain the abundance of plant fossils, coal deposits, all over the world in such a short period of time. From the time of the creation of Adam to the time of uh, Noah's flood, we have about 1,656 years. If the chronologies are correct, the genealogies are correct. That's not a lot of time to produce all of the coal deposits that we have. There's a lot of coal. There's a lot of oil down there. And the environment would have had to have been pretty specific to be able to grow that amount of vegetation in such a short period of time. Okay, no rain from heaven. Oh, I do have it here. Genesis chapter 2, 5 and 6 says, Every plant of the field before it was in the earth, every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Okay, so vastly different weather patterns. Very strange compared to today. Did they have clouds? I don't know if they had clouds. They had this canopy of, of some form of water. I'm curious about stuff like that. The unique creation of man, we read about in Genesis chapter 2 and 7. The Lord God formed man in the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. This is way different from everything else in the entire universe. The entire universe was created by God's spoken word. He spoke and it came into existence. But not man. We were formed by the very hands of God. He took clay, he formed it, he breathed into it, and man became a living soul. Very uniquely created. We're the only creature in all of creation that has God's breath in us. We are the only creature in all of creation that is built or or. Uh, Created in His image, His likeness. That has all kinds of connotations. We read about the first covenant. Marriage. Adam, or I'm sorry, God created Eve out of the side of Adam. Did I get that right? I did. The first man, the first woman. The first marriage to represent to us God's relationship with His church. We've talked about covenants at length. It wasn't a contract. It wasn't some kind of handshake agreement. It was a covenant. Till death do they part. They became one flesh. And God's desire for us, God's desire for His church, is that we become one with Him. 
that we become like Him. Amen. We read about the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, who came to Eve with some questions. Questioning God's Word. The reason I bring up the serpent in this context is we read that the serpent had legs. Is that actually true? They obviously don't today. We read later where the serpent was cursed to crawl on his belly. Did he have legs before? Could the serpent speak? Well, this serpent could. He spoke to Eve, asked her some questions. Was that indicative of all serpents of the day? Here's why I believe that that is not true. Talking and reasoning in language is part of the original created difference between man and animals. Now, certainly animals can communicate rudimentary uh, things. Can communicate fear, hunger, warning, things like that. But that's instinctual. That's kind of hardwired into them. Human beings, we can learn. We can learn language. We can learn another language. We can learn abstract ideas, concepts, and understand them. And we can communicate those abstract ideas to others. That is something that only human beings can do. Because we're created in the image and likeness of God. That includes the ability to convey information through a written or spoken language. I've got to conclude that this is an event where Satan was speaking through the serpent. I don't believe that snakes could speak. Now, am I going to be dogmatic about that? Nope. If you can show me something else, I'll gladly listen. But I think that uh, I think that taking everything as a whole, Satan was speaking through him. Do donkeys speak? No, they don't speak. However, one did speak. But that was a supernatural event. <clears throat> Eve should have been, if that's the case, at least very suspicious of the talking serpent. Maybe she was taken by surprise or stunned by it. I don't know. Uh, in any case, we know how that story concluded. The fall, judgment, and promise. Here's where we're introduced to the concept of death. Now, it was actually introduced when God gave them the one commandment. In the day that ye eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. That was not an original part of God's creation. Death was never supposed to be here. So this concept of death is introduced in the context of a punishment for sin. And we talked about last week how important that is. It comes as a consequence or a punishment for sin. Which means that death comes afterward, not before. If death comes before sin, then death is not a punishment for sin. And that means Jesus didn't have to die on a cross to take care of my sin. And if that's the case, 
His crucifixion is irrelevant. And if that's the case, the Gospel is irrelevant. Do you see how quickly this degenerates? Okay, Mr. Smart Guy, what about the plants that everyone ate? Huh? Didn't they eat plants? Didn't the plants die when they ate them? Now, we've talked about this before. The Bible always refers to that as the plants withered, the plants faded. We never read about the plants dying, not in a biblical sense. There is no breath of life in the plants. They are, I guess, in a biblical sense, uh, what would you say, organic, self-replicating food source. Yeah, that sounds cool. <clears throat> but it's not alive in the biblical sense. Now, we can define life all kinds of ways. Certainly, uh, pro-abortionists define life one way. That doesn't mean it's true. In the biblical sense, plants are not living. We see the introduction of clothing. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were completely naked. They were not ashamed. God didn't say anything. Not one word about it. After the fall, we read that Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with plants, with fig leaves. And God later came and clothed them with the skins of animals. Now this idea of clothing, the introduction of clothing, is mildly interesting because as a sinless creature, clothing is not required. Apparently. Adam and Eve were not clothed. They walked with God in the cool of the day. Completely naked. And they, that was okay. They were sinless. They were sinless. After they sinned, there was shame. And they tried to cover that shame themselves. Their own ways. Their own methods. God said, no. That's not gonna, that will not suffice. It will take the shedding of blood to cover sin. Hebrews 9.22 Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission or forgiveness. We read in the Old Testament when the priests went into the uh, Holy of Holies. One time a year on the Day of Atonement, they would bring the blood sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. They were fully clothed. Fully clothed. They were ceremonially clean. They had to be to enter into the presence of God. Our high priest, when he entered in, when he was hanging on a cross, how was he clothed? He was naked. He was completely naked. Hanging there in God's presence. Why was that acceptable? There was no sin there. He was sinless. I know the Bible says he became sin. But he himself was sinless. After the fall, we read several curses that took place. Now in 
I don't know where it is now. I think it was in junior high when I was in school. We read about the laws of thermodynamics. There's three laws. Uh, I'm only interested in the second tonight, so don't worry about the other two. The second law of thermodynamics states that as basic as possible, within a closed system, that system tends toward increased entropy or uh, what that means is an increase in disorder. Okay? The longer a system goes on, without anything being added to it, it tends toward disorder. Things fall apart. Things decay. That seems to describe the world today. Fifty years ago, I looked a little bit more robust than I do today. Now I'm starting to get... I would have gray hair if I let it grow that long. But I don't. Things just don't work like they used to. Takes me a little bit longer to recover from intense exercise than it used to when I was an 18-year-old. Takes me a little bit longer to get up if I fall down, etc. Things are winding down. Things are not getting better. They're getting worse as a whole. Some people would have us believe that the second law of thermodynamics was instituted by God after the fall because of this fact, this idea of of increasing entropy or increasing disorder. And so, uh, I don't believe that's the case. And, and here's a couple reasons why. One, Adam and Eve, they were still able to walk around. And why that's significant is, uh, for me to walk, I need something called friction. My brother would call it gripson. But uh, it's really friction. It's kinetic energy being input into this, gravity pulling down, and uh, it generates a little bit of heat, a little bit of waste, but for the most part, it lets me push forward, okay? Without the second law of thermodynamics, that doesn't work. There is no wasted energy. There is no, uh, it, it's, a, it's a perfect conversion, and so that wouldn't work. The act of breathing indicates a movement of gas from a high-pressure area to a low-pressure area. When I, there's low pressure in my lungs, and the air is coming in to kind of balance that out. Digestion of food. I won't get into the mechanics of it, but that requires the second law of thermodynamics to convert those food molecules into usable energy that the body can use to repair and to grow, etc., Prior to the fall, it seems that God upheld His creation perfectly. Then after the fall, He withdrew some of His sustaining power. He still upholds all things by the word of His power, but not perfectly. Not like He did before the fall. It's kind of like in a smaller, more localized sense. When the United States was... I don't know if it was ever truly holy... Christian, but certainly 
there were more Christian periods in our, our history than there, there were others. But at our best, we thrived, we prospered, we grew. Why? Because God's hand was on us for good. That's the blessing of God on this country. Today, we see quite the opposite. All of these hurricanes keep hitting our coasts. All of these fires in California because there's no rain. Just all of a sudden, well, it's El Nino. El Nino. That's, that's what's causing that. Ultimately, I think it's because God is removing, very slowly but very surely, His hand of blessing, His hand of protection on our country because of our disobedience. I think He's, he's done that to all of His creation when Adam and Eve fell into sin. Today, we live in a world, a universe that is suffering the cumulative effects of this increasing disorder. Things are not getting better. They're getting worse. If I leave, for example, if I leave my car out in the sun, my brand new car, whatever it might be, my brand new Chevy Savelle, <coughs> I don't have one. But if I did, I wouldn't leave it in the sun. If I leave it in the sun, is that going to put a nice shine on it? Is that going to make it look just spotless and perfect? That's going to cause it to fade. Evolutionists would have us believe that if we just add energy to the system, things do get better. Things do uh, increase in order. Not disorder. Well, I've never seen a good demonstration of that. I mean, we added all kinds of energy uh, to Japan in World War II. But to speak freely, that didn't add anything. That destroyed. That didn't build anything. If I leave my car in the sun, the pavement... That's going to break up and, and crumble if just left to its own. Nothing gets better by itself. Everything tends toward disorder. All right. That was present before the fall, I believe, but it was kind of magnified or heightened after the fall. Okay. Knowledge and technology during the antediluvian or, or pre-flood period. What kind of technology, what kind of knowledge did they have? What kind of civilization were they a part of? Well, there's precious little to go off of there. But we can speculate some things. Their physical state. Well, because of their environment, little to no genetic mutations or degradation of the DNA would have taken place. They would have lived a very long and fulfilling life for their whole lifespan. Today, we, we gradually, as we get older, you know, the, the aches and pains come and, and it's a little bit harder to get up off the seat and takes a little bit longer. And eventually, you know, when, when we get very elderly, it becomes hard to do a lot of things. Sometimes our minds become affected. A lot of times our bodies become affected. And that is simply because of our age. The longer we are on planet Earth, the more we succumb to these external effects. 
cosmic radiation, uh, whatever they put in our food today is going to accumulate. Uh, you know, all kinds of things are accumulating in here. That's why me at 20 is going to look a whole lot different than me at 90. Right? I'm hoping I look exactly the same. But I doubt it. I very much doubt it. I'm going to look a little wiser. I'm going to look a little bit more like an elder statesman at 90 than at 20. And that's the effect of age. Back before the flood, the environment would have been such as none of that would have happened. There would be no gradual process of decay like that. They would have, they would have been very strong and very healthy up until the time of their death. Being closer to creation, their bodies were far closer physically to their origins and thus they were healthier, stronger, lived far longer. They were more fit and very resistant to disease and injury. Again, because of the environment that they lived in. How about their mental state? Well, remember, this is right after the fall. And perhaps, perhaps these uh, examples will mean more as we go on and we see the, the uh, degradation of technology and uh, civilization's capabilities as time goes on. The farther time goes on after the flood, we're going to see that their technology gets worse, not better. The earliest pyramids are the most sophisticated pyramids in Egypt. The last pyramids that were built are they're horrible in comparison. So, we'll talk more about that in other lessons, but being closer to creation, that wouldn't have had a chance to take effect yet. All of the, the debilitating effects of the aging process, diseases that affect the mind would have been easier to resist. And the amount of time they had to dedicate to learning was in centuries, not in years. Imagine, Bishop, what you could learn in 900 years. That would be a long time to study something out. And you got other people studying other things out for 900 years, and you got time to read their stuff. There was a common language. We have to assume there was a common language coming out. With all these advantages, they would have very quickly attained a high level of technological sophistication. In fact, a lot of people believe, those that do this stuff, they believe it's very possible that they could have attained a level of sophistication that would have rivaled our current 21st century achievements or even surpassed them. They could have been even more technologically advanced than we are at present today. Just as an example, we can see uh, the effect of the grandchildren of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, what they were able to accomplish in the very early post-flood world. They built this huge tower. What did they have to build it with? Well, I think we've talked about this before, too. Um, imagine that you, were, you are a computer engineer. You design processor chips. And you build them from scratch. You know, you, you design the whole process. You diagram everything out. You know what everything does. And you build them. 
Now imagine going back to 500 A.D. Is everything there available for you to build a microprocessor, a computer chip, a CPU? Yes, everything is present, but not in the form that you need it to be. Basically, what you would have to do is replicate all of the advancements up until that point. Does that make sense? Because you don't have any of the tools. You don't have the tools that are build the tools. And on and on and on. So, imagine coming through the flood with all of this knowledge of, of everything. But no capability to, to reproduce that or, or to build anything. They would have had to start building things from scratch. Regenerating the infrastructure, as it were. And replace that so that they could, again, build the things that they had in the first place. But even with the little stuff that they did have, they were able to build this tower. It was an advanced feat of engineering, folks. It's pretty impressive. And they were able to do that. Occupations, we find first, uh, first mention of several occupations. Agriculture and shepherding from Cain and Abel. Uh, nomadic culture, domesticated animals, animal husbandry, uh, musicians and musical instruments. We have found some very ancient musical instruments that were so sophisticated uh, that those that design these things state that it would be extremely difficult to improve on them. They're built perfect. They created smelting and metalworking. If you understand the technology uh, behind some of the more advanced aller or allergies, alloys, <laughs> smelt and allergy, of some of the alloys that we've created. It's a fairly advanced process, particularly for someone uh, that is supposed to be pretty primitive. Okay, we got something called uparts. Uparts is an actual term that's used by uh, geologists, uh, secular scientists. It stands for out-of-place artifacts. Out-of-place artifacts. As an example of one, uh, some rockhounds collecting geodes in the Casa Mountains of California discovered what appeared to be an electrical device of vast antiquity. And we read the account of this in uh, an article in Parade Magazine called Were Ancient Scientists Really Tuned to Today? by Brad Steiger. And he says this, Sliced in two, the object showed a hexagonal part, a porcelain or ceramic insulator with a central metallic shaft and the remains of a corroded piece of metal with threads. The overall impression is that the object in the geode is man-made and not a bizarre trick of nature. It appears to be some kind of electrical device, specifically a spark plug. Now, according to the secular geologists, this geode is supposed to be very ancient, very old, billions of years old. To find something like this stuck inside one is a little disconcerting to them. Robert Patton in Omni Magazine 
uh, has an article called Uparts. He says this, The unprecedented explosion of knowledge 5,000 years ago, they believe, may have been foreshadowed by an earlier society whose cultural remnants have long since vanished. Well, that sounds exactly like the creation account, like the biblical account we read. Again, as we progress through this lesson, we're going to see the civilizations that uh, happened after the dispersion of Babel. Babel? Heard it both ways. The civilizations that developed, the ancient Egyptians, uh, the Mayans, different cultures, the Aztecs, all of these cultures had a lot of similarities. And in every one of them, we're going to see that the first, the first portions of those cultures are the most spectacular. They're the most scientifically advanced. The, the, uh, the architecture that we discover from the earliest time periods are the best. They're the they're most well-built, most well-formed, designed. And as time goes on, it gets worse and worse and worse. To the point where, in Egypt anyway, they just stop building them. More on that later. But the reason I bring that up is because as we go back in time, it's supposed to be more primitive. The Neanderthal, the Cro-Magnon, the, uh, the, the subhuman living in a cave with rocks and sticks. That's the picture that they're expecting us to believe. But nobody finds that. They find quite the opposite. Rene Norberg, Norberg-Burgen, sorry, in Secrets of the Lost Races, New Discoveries of Advanced Technology and Ancient Civilizations, says this, and I quote, A closer look at the strange artifacts now suggests that the Uparts originated in a man-made civilization, one that antedated known history. One that attained an elevated degree of development but was destroyed to such an extent by a devastating catastrophe in the distant past that only a few remnants of its science and technology survived among the inferior cultures that succeeded it in history. So he's stating the exact same thing. The earlier back you go, the more advanced we get. The closer we get up until very recent times, the less advanced we get. Quite the opposite. Now, one thing this serves to, to let us know about is the extreme sophistication and development of the pre-flood era. For them to come through the flood with this level of, of knowledge, sophistication, this level of, of technological uh, ability, suggests that it was present pre-flood. Noah and his sons would have brought it over with them through the flood. Taught them to their sons, their grandsons, etc., children. <clears throat> and again, we're going we're gonna to discuss more about that as we go on. All right. Here's a question that some people ask, sometimes honestly, sometimes not so honestly. Where did all the people come from that Cain was supposed to be afraid of? We read in Genesis 4, 13 through 14. Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, 
Thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. Okay, well, up until this point, the problem here is that we only read about four people. Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Abel's gone. We got three left. So who are these people that he's afraid of? That's a good question. Let's try to answer that. People would have us believe because of this, there were other people on the earth that Adam was not actually the first man. He just represents the beginning of humanity. There were actually a lot of people around before him. Okay? God just selected him as representative. And they use this to support that. Imagine a scenario where you and your spouse live to be about 950 years old, and there's probably, as far as we can tell, no birth control. How many children could you have? A few, right? Okay, if we look at Genesis chapter 5, we're going to see this a lot uh, in the genealogies, but we'll look at verse 4 as an example. The days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years, and he begat, what? Sons and daughters. Okay. We need to understand that not every person who is ever alive is mentioned in Scripture. As far as I can tell, I'm not listed in Scripture. But I'm here. Still. You're here. You're not mentioned in Scripture. There were all kinds of people that existed during the time of Jesus. They're not mentioned in Scripture. They don't need to be mentioned in Scripture. If something's mentioned in Scripture, it's for our benefit. It's for a reason. God wants us to know that for a reason. If it's not in Scripture, then we don't need to know it. There were a lot of people, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, that were around during this time. One writer has estimated that if Adam, during his lifetime, saw only half the children he could have fathered grow up, and if only half of those got married, and if only half of those who got married had children, and even at these conservative rates, Adam would have seen more than a million of his descendants by the time he died. Not direct descendants, but total. A million. And that's a very conservative figure. If we extrapolate this to the entire population, a solid conservative world population estimate at the time of the flood would be around 7 billion people. It's a lot of people. So we see this, this, uh, this question isn't a problem. It's not a problem at all. Genealogies. Everybody loves genealogies. Once you get into Chronicles, mm, you know it's going to be a good time. Sit down with a bowl of popcorn, favorite drink, and just dig in. 
But genealogies are important, folks. They're in there for a reason. In every genealogy, we're looking at Genesis chapter 5 now. In every genealogy we read, it includes specific ages and years where specific births took place. We read that in verse 4 of chapter 5. The days of Adam after he begat... I'm sorry, no we didn't. Verse 3. He was such and such years old when he had Seth. This is important. That's in there for a reason, because through this we can establish a timeline. Through this information, we can establish uh, chronologies. Every genealogy includes the phrase, and begat sons and daughters. None of them had just one child. They all had a bunch of children. Every genealogy ends with the phrase, and he died. We read that phrase a lot in Genesis chapter 5. And he died. And he died. And he died. The sin curse. The curse of death. The punishment for our sins. It's a very serious deal. And God meant it when He said it. Alright, everyone's favorite antediluvian patriarch is got to be other than Noah. Methuselah. Methuselah is the oldest living person in all of history. 969 years old when he died. <clears throat> it's quite an accomplishment. His name means when he dies it shall come. There are other derivatives of that, but when he dies it will come. Meaning that when Methuselah dies, God's judgment is coming. Methuselah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna add up the dates. Is that actually what happened? Well, we can use these time periods, these, these ages, to determine exactly if that's true or false. We read in Genesis 5.25, Methuselah lived 180 and 7 years and begat Lamech. Okay? Lamech, uh, so Methuselah was 187 years old when Lamech was born. Genesis 5:28 and 29 says, Lamech lived in 180 and two years and begat a son, and he called his name Noah. Okay, so Lamech was 182 years old when Noah was born. And Genesis 7 and 6 says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. So we add all those up. 187 years old, Methuselah. 182 years, Lamech. 600 years, Noah. And we get exactly... 969 years. Fascinating. The flood came the same exact year that Methuselah died. Some interesting stuff about Methuselah. We see that Enoch began walking with God after Methuselah was born. Genesis 5.22 says, Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. Is it possible that the knowledge of God's impending judgment might have motivated Enoch to draw very close to God? Purely speculative, but an interesting question. Did Noah point to his grandfather Methuselah when he preached to those around him about God's coming judgment? 
One thing I do find fascinating is that in Methuselah, we can see the great long-suffering patience of God. After Methuselah died, that's when his judgment was going to come. And we see that Methuselah was the longest-lived person in all of time. God withheld his judgment for 969 years, allowing people to repent. I find that fascinating. All right. Nephilim. Neph- <laughs> I always say that. Nephilim. All right. So who are these guys? Genesis 6-2 says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, that they took them wives of all which they chose. Verse 4 there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Modern translations translate giants in the, there were giants in the earth, to Nephilim. We also read this in Numbers chapter 13, starting with verse 32. It says, They brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it, is the land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. Now, giants, the sons of Anak, uh, if we look at another translation, we see that translated Nephilim. Uh, Numbers 13.33 in the English Standard Version says this, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Okay. Like I said, we're not going to get a lot of time here tonight, but we'll introduce the topic and then hit it next week, Lord willing. This is a very hotly debated topic among Christian circles. There are five prevailing theories as to what these Nephilim are. One is popular but quite unscriptural, stating that the Nephilim were space aliens. <clears throat> uh, there are a lot of reasons to not support this idea. Uh, I won't get into them here tonight, maybe next week, but uh, I do not subscribe to the space alien theory. Of the four that have some biblical support, we have these four. Uh, they're fallen angels, and they bred with women and resulted in giants called Nephilim. This is the most popular idea of the four. Another one is that the sons of God were the result of fallen angels who overtook or possessed ungodly men to breed with women. A third idea is that these were the Sethites, descendants of Adam's son Seth. There are some variations that fall under this theory. We'll look at those. The last is that godly men took ungodly wives and their descendants, the Nephilim, followed after false gods, rejecting the one true God, and fell far from God into wickedness. We'll look at those more in depth. And the reason I bring this up, and the reason I, I'm going to spend as much time on it as I will, is because there are some weird ideas out there. And they have some scriptural basis. And I want to demonstrate uh, maybe in this context uh, why, why people arrive at the conclusions they do. Not doing proper interpretation 
uh, taking scriptures out of context. Uh, those kinds of things are very prevalent, uh, especially when we come and we approach scripture with a preconceived idea. When we do that, uh, we're already in a pretty precarious position. Rather, in everything, we should approach scripture uh, with the idea that I just want to know what God says. I want to know what God's point of view is on this. That's it. Uh, whatever I have, it's going to conform. I'm going to make it conform to God's, to truth. All right. So, this is the time period between the creation of Adam and Eve to the time of Noah. Uh, 1,056 years from the creation of Adam to the birth of Noah, or a period of 1,656 years from the creation of Adam to the flood. There are a lot of rather interesting events that took place during this time period. But these events are not allegories. They are an actual and historical account of people, places, and events that existed and that took place during this time period. They actually happened. And it happened just like God says it did. Alright, next week we're going to dive into the Nephilim and after that the events leading up to, during, and immediately following the flood. It's a lot to cover then. Stay tuned. Let's all stand. Thank you, Jesus, for the precious Word of God. I am so thankful that when we approach the Word of God, we can discern truth from you. We can hear what thus saith the Lord. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we approach the Word of God, and we seek to understand wisdom, knowledge, understanding, that we approach it not with a preconceived idea or a, a, a mindset that's already made up, but we want to hear what thus saith the Lord. We want to know truth. We want revelation of truth. I pray, Lord, that you would bless the people of God, bless those within the sound of my voice. Bring us back to the house of God at the day appointed. These things we ask in Jesus' name.